The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. He didn't tell them to get their armor ready and swords sharpened. Instead, he tells them to submit and honor the emperor. That's an interesting reality. Right? That's an interesting truth. Like God, God speaks through Peter and tells him what to write to prepare these Christians for the persecution that's coming. And he doesn't tell them, get ready for battle. The storm's coming. Let's go fight. That's an interesting reality, right? We would think this would be a, a gather your armies type of situation, right? But Peter, through the inspiration of God himself, says... Submit in honor. Why? Why would he do that? Because this is what godliness looks like. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I get some of us don't want to hear that, but this is what the Christian life should look like. And like I said last week, for many of us, this is a hard pill to swallow. This is where the Bible becomes a little more difficult than surrender your heart to Jesus and ask him in your heart and you'll be saved forever, right? This, this is where surrendering becomes real. This is where surrendering becomes a harder truth than just come to church on Sundays and try to be a good person, right? This is, this is a, hard, a hard truth. This is where the sincerity of our faith and lordship, this is where they're really tested, so today we're going to finish up chapter 2, and really Peter just adds to this idea of submission and honor. So let's read together, starting in verse 18. It says, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth when he was insulted. He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So what's Paul talking about? I mean, Peter talking about here. He takes the idea of submission and honor a step further and applies it to unjust suffering. So let's look at three things Peter says about unjust suffering. First of all, unjust suffering brings favor with God. Unjust suffering brings favor with God. Now, as we read that, that's some pretty intense, deep stuff, right? That takes it a step further from our little picturesque kids' Bible that we grew up reading. This understanding of who God is and what he wants for our life changes a little bit, right? 
So a lot of people have this idea of God that he's like this sky genie that man, you just, you're going through a rough day, you just, you just pray to God and, and he's going to give you all the things that your heart desires and, and God's all about you. But then we read this text and it says that God wants you to endure suffering for his own purposes. And then he delights in that. This is a different picture of who God is than maybe what some of us have an understanding of, right? So here, we're told to submit and honor again. This time, it's, it's as it relates to household slaves. And so household slaves, these would, been, these would have been servants who had a closer relationship with the landowner. They worked in the house close to the landowner's family. And so there is a big question about the Bible condoning slavery with verses like this. And I'm not going to take time to explore that question this morning, but maybe Julie and I will do a podcast one day and we'll get into it. Um, Maybe in the near future we can study and and put something together and you guys can go listen to it. I'm not covering it today for two reasons. One, there are a lot of things going on here culturally that I I just don't think a 21st century American uh, really has a frame of reference for, and it would take us a lot longer than a Sunday sermon to really unpack it all. I mean, we could literally do four weeks on that. I mean, it would take us a while. Uh, So if you listen to the podcast, it's probably going to be a long one. Um, And and then two, I don't really think uh, that this is the point that Peter's trying to make. And I think for us to get off into that uh, would really take away from the point of the text. And uh, we're here to study the text. Okay, so we're not going to dive off into that, but we'll have fun with that later. Right. All right. I will say that a lot of pastors and commentators will try to take this idea of indentured servitude and apply it to the modern day employee employer relationship. I'm not going to do that either. I'm not going to apply this specifically in that way because I really think that's a stretch. There were employees and employers in ancient times too. The slave master relationship was very different from the employee employer relationship. And Peter doesn't choose to address the employee employer relationship. He's speaking specifically to slaves. Slaves were either in that position because of punishment for a crime, maybe they did something wrong and part of their punishment was slavery, or because of financial reasons, they had debt or poverty that they couldn't take care of themselves, so they put themselves into indentured servitude to be able to survive, or sometimes by unjust means. They were thrown into slavery because of unjust reasons, just like Joseph, right? We know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He gets sold sold into slavery by his brothers, and he spends uh, most of his life in that. I think it's a stretch to make the connection because employees can quit when they're being treated unjustly. Slaves didn't really have that option. So honestly, I think it diminishes what Peter is really saying here when we try to specifically apply it to employer-employee relationship. I think what Peter is saying is actually a lot more difficult than that, right? It's a lot more difficult because, let's be honest, your boss has probably never got a whip and beat you with it. I would like to think that your boss didn't do that. And if he did, you're not stuck there. You could quit. I think what Peter's talking about is a lot harder to accept than just submitting and honor your bosses at work. Peter's trying to make a greater point about the Christian's response to unjust suffering as it relates to the abuse of authority as a whole. And he gives us some extreme examples, right? He starts with the abuse of Emperor Nero, and now he's getting into more interpersonal authoritative relationships, right? So it's really this overarching idea of submitting, uh, regardless of the relationship, 
Christians should respond a certain way to unjust suffering, and that way is quite different from our natural impulse. Right? If you endure unjust suffering, your natural impulse, impulse is probably to fight back. Right? I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but when people start talking about the government coming to get your guns, what are you thinking? Let them come on, right? That's, that's the good old Southeast Texas way. I don't think that's the Christian way, though. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have guns. I have guns. I like them. They're fun. But I don't think our call as believers is to get our arms together and fight the government. That's not what Peter says here. He says, submit and honor. An example of this is David and Saul. You guys know King David, he kills Goliath. He kills Goliath and then <laughs> there's this big party in the streets and all these girls start walking down the streets and they start singing, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Right, what happens? Saul gets mad, he's the king, and everybody's talking about David and how awesome he is, and, they, and he gets infuriated, and he actually ends up losing, and the Bible says that this, this evil spirit comes upon him, and he becomes nuts at this point. And he ends up trying to kill David, he goes after David, he's constantly trying to kill him, he's, he's trying to find him, and uh, there's this, this really cool situation that happens in 1 Samuel 24, verse 2, it says, so Saul took 3,000 men of, of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep's pen along the road, the cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, so they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord has told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you, and you can do with him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, we could get into the logistics of what that looked like, but I, <laughs> that's weird. All right, afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, lowercase l, the Lord, capital L's, anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. There's the honor. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the people who say, look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift a hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe and my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I have committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you or even though... Uh, you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. So notice a couple of things here. First, David understood that God was sovereign over this situation. Right? This is a crazy king. This dude's out trying to kill David. He's lost his mind. Did you notice he got like 3,000 dudes to go get David and his little army? He's, he's, he's lost his mind. He's going after David. He's trying to hurt him unjustly, right? David has done nothing wrong. Yet David wouldn't attack God's anointed. 
It was God that placed Saul in authority and David trusted God to remove him from authority in his own timing. You get that? David understood that God is the one who put Saul in the position of king. And even though God had already promised David that he would be king, David waited until God dealt with that situation. He was not going to touch God's anointed. Second, David relies on God to enact vengeance for Saul's unjust treatment on David's behalf. God is the ultimate judge. And we as believers should realize it's not our job to resist unjust treatment. We submit and trust that he will judge it righteously. God is the avenger, not you. It's not your job to fight. Let God handle it. So Peter says, even if the master was cruel or unreasonable, the word for unreasonable is crooked, all right? Even if, even if the master was crooked in his dealings, it's the same idea as like your spine being all crooked. He's crooked in his dealings financially. He's, he's a terrible person. The slave was still to submit. So here's the truth. There will be people with authority over you who are cruel and unreasonable. And just think of this slave-master context. This is a tough pill to swallow. If a master is cruel, unreasonable, or crooked in his dealings with the slave, Peter says, submit and revere him. Can you imagine how difficult that is? Can you imagine how difficult that is to the people who are, who are reading this letter from, from Peter who are really actually slaves? Who really actually have masters who are cruel to them? Again, this is why faith is such a huge part of all this. You have to really believe that God is in control and will avenge evil in the last days. You have to really believe that. If you don't believe that, then, <laughs> then this is pointless. We're wasting our time this morning. You have to believe that God is in control and he will take care of things, right? That's not easy for a lot of us. A lot of us want to be in control. We want to be able to control our situation. So when, when all this stuff comes, we're ready to get our, our guns together and fight. God says, no, let me, let me deal with that. Let me handle that for you. Paul writes about this as well in Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. Again, Submission and honor. In the sincerity of your heart. So like be sincere about it. Not just do it because you're told to do it, but be sincere. As you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So Paul says, obey with sincere respect. Don't just do your work so that the master thinks you're doing a good job. Really do a good job as if you're working for God himself. This, this idea of submission and honor is such a hard thing to surrender to, especially when Peter puts it in these extreme contexts because it leaves us with no excuse. Our situation is not this extreme. It's not. And so when Peter puts it in these extreme contexts, it leaves us in today's 21st American church, no excuse. You have no excuse for this. No way out. If a slave can submit and honor an abusive master, then we can easily submit and honor the authorities in our life. 
Peter, Peter even says that it brings favor, or literally the word is grace, if because of a desire to serve God, you endure suffering unjustly. In other words, God is pleased when you're treated unjustly, and instead of lashing out, you endure that unjust treatment out of a desire to honor God in that situation. So Peter gives these extreme examples of the emperor Nero and now crooked slave masters to help us understand this truth. When because of our faith in Jesus, we submit and honor the authorities in our lives, even if they're unjust in their treatment, we prove that our real hope is in the world to come and that we fully trust in the sovereignty of God. This is an opportunity for believers to show the authenticity of our faith and our lordship. So let me finish up this point, not the entire sermon, with some quick truths about enduring unjust suffering. Enduring unjust suffering gives us an opportunity to prove the life-changing power of the gospel and be a light to the world around us. That should matter to you. As a Christian, that should matter to you more than anything else because that's what God has called you to do. That's the command on your life, is to go and make disciples. And so if you're really a Christian this morning, that's the mission that God is giving you, and so nothing else should matter. Another truth, enduring unjust suffering gives us an opportunity to reveal the proven character of our faith. You know, a lot of people wrestle with whether or not they're truly saved. Is their faith real? They wrestle with these things. Enduring unjust suffering gives you an opportunity to reveal the proven character of your faith. If you can endure unjust suffering because God told you to, that proves that you're the real deal. And the last one is enduring unjust suffering gives us an opportunity to be more like Jesus. Which leads us to our next point. Unjust suffering was modeled by God. Look at verse 21. He says, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So Peter says, you're called to this. In other words, this is what Christianity really looks like. This unbelievable response to unjust suffering is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. He left the example of what this looks like. Peter says you should follow in his steps. Live like Jesus lived. A lot of people really like Jesus. They like what, what, what he can offer them in their life. They like the idea of salvation. They like the idea of heaven. They like his teachings about selflessness and all that kind of stuff. But not a lot of people really want to follow him because that's what this looks like. Right? Following is a little harder. Living your life like Jesus lived his life, a little harder. That's what it really means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. We follow Jesus even in how we respond to unjust suffering. Isaiah even prophesied about how Jesus would respond to his unjust suffering. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. So Jesus was oppressed, he was afflicted, and we know he was accused, mocked, spat on, beaten, and yet he just endured it. This is what Peter's talking about. Peter gives a few examples of how Jesus handled unjust suffering. First, he says he didn't sin. 
Jesus didn't allow his anger to lead him to sin. Even in the midst of unjust suffering, Jesus had self-control. He was able to control himself. He didn't lose control. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Jesus would have been tempted. He understands the temptation to lose control when facing unjust suffering. But he overcame that temptation and didn't sin. This is what Peter is saying should be true about us. We're going to face unjust suffering at the hand of authority sometimes. But Peter says, be like Jesus. Don't sin. Don't lose control. And through the power of the Spirit, that's actually possible. He also says he didn't lie. <laughs> we, we live in a day and age where We've got people that are really fearful, really angry, really divisive. There's just so much like hate going on. And that's more evident in, in, on Facebook than in any other arena in our lives, I guess. I really just wish that God would destroy Facebook. I, I'm like, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, burn it down, let, make them lose, lose the algorithm. I know they probably have it stored everywhere, but God can do anything he wants. Like, like just get it rid of it completely because it has become the degradation of our society, I believe. That being said, because so many people are fearful and angry, we like to share stuff on Facebook, right? Some of you really like to share stuff on Facebook. I've seen it. We're friends. And some of us like to share things on Facebook without really checking if it's real or not. Some of you have shared that picture from the dude from Star Wars saying it was Jesus, and that's, that's the dude from Star Wars, all right? Let me just help you. Stop sharing that picture of Jesus that's the dude from Star Wars. You look silly. That being said, a lot of us like to share things that we have not verified to be true. That's bearing false witness. Maybe you didn't create the meme, but by sharing it, you are complicit in lying. Stop sharing stuff if you don't know it to be true. You don't. You need to be careful what you share. Jesus had people making stuff up about him. Lots of stuff. Mark 14, 55, we see this courtroom scene. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. They're looking for stuff to put Jesus to death, and there's no testimony against him. But for many, were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies didn't agree. So people are saying stuff, and they're, they're not agreeing with one another, and it doesn't make any sense. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Can you imagine the temptation to return evil for evil? Anybody ever lied about you? Man, that that would get your blood boiling right there. Somebody starts talking trash on you and it's not real. If you talk trash on me and it's real, I mean, what am I going to do about it? But if it's fake, that would get you angry pretty quick. These people were just making stuff up about Jesus. And when given the opportunity to respond, he kept his mouth shut. He could have made up stuff about these people, yet he continued to remain silent. Right? He didn't lie. It also says he didn't return insult. 
This is where this gets tough for some of us. Jesus was insulted, he was beaten, he was spat on, he was mocked. Now, I have a level of pride that would make it very hard for me to endure something like this. Maybe you can relate. If you attack me, I'm going to have a hard time not returning the favor. If you spit on me, I might just shoot you. Because that's, that's like the thing for me. Like when my kids were little and they, you know, you hold them up and they drill on you, like it starts to elicit some things, some gag reflexes that I just don't do well with. Spit is disgusting to me. So you spit on me, that's a bad day, right? And I have this level of pride where I think if you do that to me, then I'm going to get you back, right? Jesus is God. Do you get that? It's one thing for someone to call me names. It's a whole other thing for the creation to insult the creator. Do you get how crazy this is? We're talking about humility on infinite proportions. Jesus is creator God and people spat on him and he didn't return insult. This is such a huge deal. When I look at it from that perspective, the idea of me thinking I'm too good not to do the same is ludicrous. The God that created all things was insulted by the creation and spat on by the creation, and yet he didn't return insult. It also says he didn't threaten. And this is where I said I was getting ahead of myself. We had this mentality, if the government comes for my guns, they're going to get blasted into eternity. And that's probably true. The government comes down to southeast Texas, I know some dudes with like some stuff they should not have. And I get that temptation. And you know what? So does Peter. Peter writes this and he gets the temptation. This was Peter's response when Jesus was taken away. Instead of enduring the unjust suffering, Peter cut off a guard's ear. What was Jesus' response to that though? Look at Matthew 26, 52. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have threatened a lot more firepower than a few swords and guards. That's the point there. Jesus is saying, look, I got more firepower than I need. I can handle this. Keep your sword in your pocket, Peter. And instead of enduring unjust suffering, Peter's ready to fight. He, he understands this temptation. Why does Jesus endure? Peter gives us that answer. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Why did Jesus endure all this stuff? Because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Look at what Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 26 after what we just read. It says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? He says, put your sword up. I can call more firepower than I need, but I'm not doing that because the scriptures must be fulfilled. This must happen this way. Jesus had faith in the Father's plan and sovereignty. He knew that there must be more going on than the immediate circumstances he was facing. Jesus was just suffering than any person that's ever existed because Jesus was more innocent than any person that's ever existed. Yet Jesus endured that suffering because there was more at stake. His focus wasn't on the here and now. His focus was on the kingdom. That's what he lived for. That's what he died for. And that's what he resurrected for. Peter's telling us that we need to have the same perspective. Don't allow circumstances to lead you to sin, lie, return insult, or threaten. 
As a Christian, you endure unjust suffering from bad authority because your trust in God to deal with the vengeance and you realize God will use your unjust suffering for his glory. You realize God's got this. He's sovereign over the situation and he'll deal with it because he's just. It's not your job. This whole idea is a test of how serious you are about giving your life to Christ. That's what this whole thing's about. How serious are you about Jesus being Lord? How serious are you about trusting in his sovereignty and his plan? How sincere is your faith? What do we think Paul meant in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you think that meant I'll try to be a good person and come to church when I'm not busy? Is that what we think that scripture means? No. The, the Bible tells us over and over again that faith can't just be an aspect of your life. It shapes everything about who you are and what you do, including how we respond to us unjust suffering. If Jesus is Lord, then we respond to unjust suffering how he says to respond to unjust suffering. It's that simple. It's that black and white. If Jesus is Lord, then we live for the kingdom over our own pride and self-preservation. If Jesus is Lord, then we understand that his glory takes priority over everything. So if God says endure unjust suffering so that I can use it to draw more people to myself, then you do exactly that because your faith has produced a genuine desire to glorify God with your life. Why do we live with this kind of surrender? Why do we crucify ourselves and live for Christ? That leads us to the last point. Unjust suffering saved your soul. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The why is an important thing for me. I've always liked to know the why. Why do we do it this way? Why, why do we do the things that we do? Why, why, what's the purpose behind this? What's the reward of this? Those are questions I like to ask. I struggle to be motivated to do stuff if I don't have the why. If I don't know why we're doing it, I'm not really going to be motivated to do it. We get this, right? We... We get this, especially as it relates to raising kids. Because if you look at everything that you give up raising kids, it doesn't seem all that logical. I'd have a lot more money. My house would be cleaner. I'd be able to eat all the Oreos and not have to share them. Right? We sacrifice a lot to raise kids. Why? Because of the reward. Right? We, we understand that there's a reward there. Peter says we do all this because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. You were a sinner dead in your trespasses, your sin, eating away at your soul like a cancer, but God brought healing. And if you're truly saved, you get this. If you're a Christian this morning, you get this because this is the gospel. 
This is what we've given ourselves to. You get the gravity of your sin and the destruction it played out on your soul, and you get the healing that came from salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the only righteous person that's ever lived. Yet he traded his righteousness for our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Through repentance and faith, we can take part in this unbelievable trade. Can you imagine this trade? Like, you're trading your filthy rags and sin and brokenness for his righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, Jesus is worthy of our lordship. He laid his life down, and the only appropriate response to that gospel is to lay our life down in return. Not in a trivial 2021 Christian culture kind of way, but in a sincere, my life is yours in all aspects kind of way. Lordship is so much more than what we're doing right now. Coming and hearing a sermon one hour a week, two hours a week, even being fully immersed in everything that the church does is not the epitome of living out the gospel. It's not the epitome of surrendering to Jesus because it's so much bigger than that. Surrendering to Jesus means that you give him all of you. You give him your fears. You give him your worries, your anxiety, your successes, your pride, all of the things about your life and who you are, your spouse, your kids, all things become his. Paul writes about this in Galatians 5, verse 24. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul says if you're really a Christian, you've crucified your passions and desires. What you want no longer exists. You live for the glory of God. His purpose is now your purpose. That's what it looks like to truly surrender. Jesus told us, what it meant to follow him. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, historical context plays a lot of important role in that, in that text right there. He says, take up your cross. That's like a trigger word in these people's minds. They'd grown up seeing Rome hang people on a cross and line the streets with Jewish people who were trying to revolt against Rome. So when Jesus says, hey, I want you to take up your cross and come on, that's, that's some big words. Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. To be a Christian means to kill our logic and desires and trade them for his. So when Peter writes about something that seems really hard to live out, put it in that perspective. Is Jesus worthy of your enduring unjust suffering. Is he worthy of that? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Is Jesus worthy of your enduring unjust suffering so that you can bring glory to his name? So that you can point people to him? I think the answer is a resounding yes because it was his unjust suffering that saved you in the first place. Peter says you were like sheep going astray, 
but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Christian life may not always be sunshine and roses, but we endure because we're being led by the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is Lord. We follow because we trust that his way is best. We follow because our hope is not in the here and now, but in eternity to come. That's what it looks like to live the godly life. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. So the question this morning, as we wrap this up, is are you willing to trust and obey? Are you willing? Again, again, I've said for the past couple of weeks that this is a true test of the sincerity of your faith. Are you real in this? Because let's be honest, it's, it's so easy in our culture today to profess Christ with your mouth but not have any desire to serve him or honor him with, 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 your, with your life. You can profess him with your mouth. That's easy, right? We can, we can come to church, we can sing the songs, we can endure all the Bible studies and enjoy all of the things that come with Christian culture, but that is not Christianity. Christianity is so much harder than that. There are some hard, hard truths in this book. And so you have to decide, do you believe this stuff or not? The days of trivial belief, they're over. You can't just check some boxes and think you're good. The question is, have you really given yourself to this? Is this stuff real to you? Are you willing to trust and obey, obey even when it comes to enduring unjust suffering? Are you willing to trust and obey when it's hard or even when it goes against your own logic or even when it goes against your own ideology? A lot of us were raised different than what we've been talking about this morning, right? We were raised, someone punches you in the mouth, what do you do? Punch them back in the mouth, right? If someone hits you in the face, you hit them back, right? That's, that's the the. Way we've been raised. And I'm not, I'm not advocating that we all become pacifists and live out in green meadows and sing kumbaya all day. There is a time for battle. There is a time for war. I get that. But there's a call for you as a Christian to endure unjust suffering. Why? Because it proves that you're real and it points people to Jesus. That's what Peter says. Christian life may not always be sunshine and roses, but we endure because we are being led by the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Are you more passionate about advancing the kingdom than you are your own pride? Again, no one ever said turning the other cheek was easy, but if Jesus is Lord, that's exactly what you do. Why? Because God said he can use our unjust suffering for his glory, and that should matter to us more than anything else. That should matter to you more than your own pride. That should matter to you more than your own security. The glory of God should be what you live your life for. This is the godly life. This is what Christian faith really looks like. And again, I think we fell at this at times. Fear, pride, doubt cause us to lash out and sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that he offers grace and mercy and when we, we repent 
and ask for forgiveness, he does forgive. So if you struggle with this, if you failed at this, ask God to forgive you and change your heart. Ask him to give you a burden for his kingdom. Ask him to give you a desire to truly live for his glory, regardless of what that costs you. Peter's saying, stay focused on what really matters, living for the glory of God and for building his kingdom. Make sure that's always the priority for your life. Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? I'm not going to belabor the point here. I'm just going to say, I think a lot of us fail at this, myself included. And I think that we need to constantly remind ourselves what we're here for, what we're glory to God, regardless of what that looks like. And so this morning, if you struggle with this, if, if this is something that you fail at, then there's a time of invitation for you to come and repent and ask God to change your heart. The band's going to sing. There's these altars down here. And as they sing, you're welcome to come down here, kneel down and pray and ask God to change your heart, to make your heart reflect more of what his heart looks like. So when the unjust suffering comes, you can endure because your focus is not on the unjust suffering. Your focus is on the glory of God and building his kingdom. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus, then let's be honest, this stuff seems crazy. Why would anybody do that? Because Jesus did it. So if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, we would love an opportunity to talk about that with you. We would love to show you in scripture what it truly means to give your life to Jesus, to make that great exchange of your sin and brokenness for his righteousness. So as the band sings in a moment, there are going to be some people standing up front. I would encourage you to come grab them by the hand and ask them, how can I, how can I surrender my life to Jesus? Father God, we thank you for thank you for the grace and mercy that you've given us this grace and mercy that we don't we don't deserve this love that we don't deserve God we understand that that our sin and brokenness separates us from you but but your mercy that reconciles us back to you So God, I pray that our faith would be real, our faith would be genuine, that we wouldn't be a group of people that are just living out a Christian culture, but that we are a group of people that are truly following after Jesus. In all aspects, not just the easy stuff, but the hard stuff. God, I pray that Give us a heart for your glory. Give us a heart for living for you the way that you say that we should live. God, I pray that as we face unjust suffering in this life, that that we could rise above the unjust suffering, that we could elevate our focus above the circumstances that we endure and recognize that you're pleased in our unjust suffering because it brings glory to you.
and that that would be enough for us. God, I pray that your glory would be enough for us in this life, that we wouldn't need our own pride, we wouldn't need our own security and preservation, God, but that your glory, your glory would be enough. God, we pray that you would move in this invitation. In your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening, and we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.